This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 31. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood. Mr. Chris Graham, how are you doing today, Chris Graham? I am wonderful. It's beautiful in Ohio right now. It feels like I live in California or something like that. It's been like 72 and sunny. Well, thanks for the weather update, weatherman Graham. (laughs) Weatherman Graham, I love that. Okay, so today's topic is something that I see as detrimental to a lot of people listening today, something that holds a lot of you back, something I've seen in countless people, not just in the audio world, but in my personal life, growing up. I've seen this in myself growing up. And that is, it's called a couple of things. You can call it the imposter syndrome. You can call it a lack of self-confidence. I think those two things go hand in hand. But at the end of the day, it's just the feeling of not being good enough, not being enough. And during our conversation before this call, we were talking about where this comes from. Let's just say in, in relation to our careers, where does that come from? Not feeling good enough to do what we do for a living, uh, to feel like you're an imposter, to feel like you are a fake or a fraud. A lot of people experience this. I felt that way myself. Well, this uh, reminds me of a conversation I saw in the Facebook group months ago where someone brought up a question. They said, you know, I did a record for this guy. He was super happy and he gave me like a hundreds and hundreds of dollars tip. He thought I didn't charge enough. Yeah, I saw that post. And I wasn't sure what to do about it. And there was a lot of conversation around like, well, I'll just apply it to his next project. It's like, no, 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 no. Take it. Don't feel guilty that he's paying you more because he thinks you're worth more. That was completely an imposter syndrome thing. And I've experienced that in my career where someone will pay me money or will offer to pay me more sometimes because they're super happy with the work and you feel guilty. Yeah. And that's weird because that's not real guilt. That's related to this imposter syndrome of not feeling good enough or not feeling qualified or or not feeling worthy. When in fact, I think in many cases, we see this all the time in our industry, the engineer is great. They just have confidence issues and this weird feeling of guilt for accepting money for doing something they love. And that's why I wanted to talk about this today because I have seen this in our own community. I've seen people feel like they're not good enough to charge or they're not good enough from a talent level to do this full time. And then I go listen to their portfolio. I go check out their website. I go, let's see what they've done. And they're incredible. They are well beyond the point of being able to do this full time. They are exceptional at what they do. And they don't even think they're good enough to get paid anything yet. And so going back to what I was talking about a second ago is where does that come from? What does that stem from in our lives? And I think it's a couple things, and this is just me shooting from the hip here, uh, and feel free to disagree, Chris, but I think it comes from a lack of any amount of positive reinforcement, meaning it could be the way you were raised, so your family never supported what you did, they always wanted you to do something else, and so anytime you try to do your own thing, they pushed against that, or they try to keep you from doing that thing. You see this in in friend groups, you see this where, you know, anytime you're doing something against the norm, something quote-unquote weird, or something out of the norm, They try to pull you down. Your friends will try to pull you down by either insults or even just joking type insults, or they will, they don't want to see you progress or get outside of what they're doing because it makes them feel bad. And I've seen this in my own life growing up. I've seen this in a lot of friends. I've seen this in the Six Figure Home Studio Facebook community. And 
you know, there's a million ways this could have started, but I think if you get down to the core of what this is, I think it's not having that initial seed of confidence, not having that initial seed of confidence that you're able to grow. I mean, there's a million ways we can slice this, Chris, but you have anything else to add as far as where this comes from? Yeah, well, I think for a lot of people, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, for myself as a mastering engineer, I liked mastering a lot. I thought it was like one of the coolest things in the world before I did it for a living. And uh, I mastered an album for a friend of mine who was a really experienced audio engineer and producer. And, you know, I had begged him, let me take a record you've already released that's already been mastered. Let me remaster it. Let me just try my hand at it. And I will never forget. His name is Chris Pyle. He lives in Athens, Ohio. And he told me after he heard the record that I mastered, he said, you are really good at this. You could do this for a living verbatim. That is exactly what he told me. And I didn't believe him. That's huge, man. I mean, I, I get why you didn't believe him because of that imposter syndrome, but yeah. just having anyone tell you that you're good enough at that stage in your career is is a huge part of being able to, to get that initial boost of confidence. That's that seed I was talking about, that seed of confidence. Yeah. So for me, when he told me that, I didn't believe him at all. I thought he was totally full of it, but it never really got away from me that it was constantly in the back of my head that I, I think I was probably 23 at the time. He was probably 33 and was a successful entrepreneur. He, you know, owns a couple of businesses. And it was always in the back of my head that maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. So it sounds like he, he planted a seed in your head of self-confidence. It took a while to germinate and sprout, but I think that is something we need to look for. Yeah, I think the flip side of that coin is that often you get the opposite of that. Absolutely. You get some jerk in your life that planted a seed of self-doubt. And I feel really lucky that I didn't have that many jerks in my life <laughs> that told me, you know, I had some, I remember one time uh, when I was producing for a living, this is probably more than 15 years ago. And I had a client over and we were tracking vocals and he was in a closet that I'd covered in foam and it was janky. It was not a great setup. Uh, I was very new in my career and I had asked at the time I had one roommate, everybody else was home for the summer to just kind of be courteous and not to be too loud, you know, because we're going to try to record. And he just laughed at me. He just thought it was ridiculous that I thought I was running a quote unquote business. And, uh, you know, thank God that didn't stick. I confronted him about it and I <laughs> told him I was making more money than he was at the time and uh, that it was a business and it didn't stick. And, and thank God that wasn't something where I just like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough and doggone it, people don't like me. <laughs> and that's the topic of this episode today is what do you do when you have this lingering feeling of self-doubt, when you feel like an imposter, but you're not? You know, that on some level, you know you're good enough, you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. But on the other hand, you're trying to get over something someone told you. Or it might not even be something someone told you, but just this weird lack of self-confidence, you know, really quick to put yourself down and not persevere. Yeah. So there are a million ways that this seed of self-doubt or this, you know, lack of self-confidence could have started in your life. Uh, could have been from your childhood, could be from the people you surround yourself with today. It could be with someone you're dating right now. There's, it could be with people that you have worked with in the past. It could be with artists you've worked with. I, I don't know. I can't get to the bottom of this with you. That's something that you'll have to talk to with a counselor or a psychologist. You know, I think ultimately this self-confidence conversation there is a component of personality in here. And there's a great book by Malcolm Gladwell that is incredible. It's called David and Goliath. And he 
he looks at this, how some people face adversity and it spurs them on to succeed and others, they shy away from it. It sort of destroys them. And he goes into great length in this book. And I think by and large, you know, for me, I think a lot of, a lot of that ultimately comes from our school system that if you don't look normal, if you're not a completely average student who's completely submissive and completely into what they're supposed to be into, you are systematically beat over the head with words from kindergarten all the way through college. And it's difficult when you choose such a non-conventional career path as I'm going to make rock and roll for a living or I'm going to make rap music for a living or whatever it happens to be. You get weird looks from conformists on that. And I think one of the most important ingredients in success is to either have thick enough skin to ignore them or to be combative enough to believe that they are wrong and you are right when they're in the majority. It's a lot easier said than done to be the one that goes against the grain. Yeah. This is coming from someone who my entire life, I've always gone against the grain <laughs> and it's, it can be extremely difficult sometimes to be that person. But I want to kind of shift into something that I call, I'm calling at least right now, the four seeds of confidence. These are four areas that you can look to in your own life to potentially plant that seed of confidence that if you don't already have that seed planted, maybe this is an area you can start looking to have that seed planted to help build that self-confidence that you can grow. So you no longer have that feeling of not being enough. So you no longer have that feeling of being an imposter. Now I'm not saying this is the answer. I am no expert at psychology, but I have done a lot of research into this just because I'm curious for my own students and my own courses, like what, what helps someone succeed. And a lot of times the thing that holds them back from success is themselves, their lack of confidence in themselves. And if they don't truly believe they can do something, whether you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. And that quote's basically just saying you are in control of what you can and can't do. And if you believe you can't do something, then that's true. If you believe you can do something, then that's also true. I'm not trying to get too hokey on this episode, but I hope that these four seeds, somewhere you'll find something that you can kind of grasp on and start to germinate and grow into a little bit more self-confidence. So here we go. Seed number one. This is looking at these four things, by the way, this is a little preface here. These four things are not going to be in everyone's life. So just choose one and run with it. Seed number one are looking at the things you've succeeded at in the past. So this is just taking stock of your positives, of your wins, of your strengths, looking to the things that are already there that you may not really be taking stock of yet. So what positive things have you done in your past? So Chris, whenever you are early on in your career, can you look at some of the early things? I guess that would be one of the early things is mastering that song and having that validation from that person which you trusted. That's the thing you succeeded at, I would say. Yeah. So man, I can't imagine what my life would look like if I hadn't been bold enough to ask to master a record for free. That had a big impact on me and his words of confidence really were effective at silencing any self-doubt that I had. Another huge part of that was that I, <laughs> I as, a, as a young child, always believed that the grown-ups were probably wrong. And I was a pain in the ass for my teachers because I was constantly convinced that they didn't actually know what they were talking about and that their idea of the real world wasn't exactly the real world. And by a great stroke of luck, I was right. Yeah. They didn't know, you know, their real world of having a union job and teaching is a whole lot different. It is, dare I say, and I speak from some experience here because my wife 
up until a few years ago, was a full-time professional teacher. She's still your wife. She's just not a professional teacher anymore. Oh, exactly. Yes. We're still happily married, but she's not teaching anymore. Not teaching at a school. She's, she's teaching homeschool for my children. Right. But she would absolutely agree that being an entrepreneur and being a teacher are basically the opposite. There's no rewards and no punishments as a teacher. No matter how bad you are at your job, you won't get fired by and large, unless you do something really ridiculous and illegal. And no matter how good you are at it, you won't get rewarded. You won't get paid more. You won't get more time off, nothing. As an entrepreneur, when you show up to work, if you do a great job in everything you need to do a great job in, you are the beneficiary of your own excellence and your own efficiency. So you can get a raise for doing better work or for being more efficient. However, if you do bad work, even if it's only in one area, like in communication or email composition even, not only can you not make money, you can lose money. So there's these giant real sticks and real carrots built into the system, as opposed to a teacher who has no carrots and no sticks other than altruism, other than doing the right thing. And I know this is offensive. I'm okay with that. I homeschool (laughs) and I have a business. How would you say this relates to self-confidence? This relates to self-confidence because in our country, and I'm speaking specifically about America, I'm sure it's different in, say, Finland, where their education system is awesome. But in our country, teachers are put inside a box. They're restricted by our system. Their system incentivizes them to find and create students and reward students who submit, who follow the rules, who do what they're told, and who, by and large, follow conventional career paths. And that's a problem because you graduate high school in our country with 13 years of education where every year at least one adult was trying to get you to make a normal choice in your life. They were trying to get you to be a a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, an accountant, something like that. And there's nothing wrong with those jobs, but they're not for everyone. There are those of us who were created for different purposes. Doesn't make us better, doesn't make us worse, but our education system beats us over the head with a stick. When I say carrot and stick, carrot being the reward, stick being the punishment. It's really, really difficult to be counterculture in our education system and most districts in our country. It's not true in all districts, but in most districts it is. So as a result, like we all carry baggage in our industry and in many other industries, I would say photography is similar. I'd say graphic design is similar. Creative arts. Any of the creative arts. You were beat over the head and told that your art class doesn't really matter. What really matters was whether you got an A in chemistry or whether you got an A in algebra or calculus. Not to say chemistry, algebra, calculus, those things aren't useful, except for calculus. It's not useful at all. (laughs) But it's not necessarily more useful to everyone. So as a student, if you show up and you're amazing in art class, or you're amazing in computer class, or you're amazing in pottery class, you know, some sort of creative art, that might be more useful for your career than your calculus class. But... If you fail calculus, you might not graduate high school. If you fail art, it doesn't really matter. And that just doesn't make sense to apply the same standards to everyone because a good economy is based on having many people with many different specializations, not having a bunch of people with identical specializations. I was just waiting for you to bring this back home. (laughs) I'm like, "Where, where are you going? Where are you going? Well, the back home there is that if you are in the creative arts, you 
are carrying baggage, most likely from your elementary, middle school, high school teachers, and probably from your college professors as well, if you went to college, that you are battling that they told you the world was a certain way. And that if you do what the system tells you to do, the system will take care of you. And that's not true. Like we as millennials know the system doesn't take care of you for being obedient to it. You can still lose your job. You can still be six figures in debt after having an education that didn't help you get a job. All right. So let me bring this back. We were talking about early experiences, things that were successes for us early on in our careers that we were able to grasp hold of and help grow into confidence. So I want to talk about something that happened early in my career. That was when I had first started my studio in 2009, I had no clients. I had just gotten started. I was just getting my feet wet when it comes to figuring all of the gear out that I had, all of the software out that I had, how the hell Pro Tools works. And I had my first moment of, you know, something I would consider a success when I had recorded a portfolio, three tracks. They were just short, they were just 30 seconds to a minute long. They were of different, I had a rock genre one. I had something in the heavy music genre and I had like acoustic or something. And it was just three songs that I had wrote, written and recorded myself just to sample what I could do. And when a friend of mine said they would give me, what was it, 50 bucks a song to come record with me based off a demo they heard, that was a small moment of success in my life where I could say, okay, I'm already at a good enough point where I can start getting paid for this because someone is willing to hand over their money. Now, not everyone's going to have some sort of moment like this in their life, but I do want to say this. If you never ask, if you never put yourself out there, if you never take that leap of faith and put yourself in a potentially awkward situation and stretch yourself, you'll never get that moment of validation. You'll never get that moment of confidence. You'll never get this, what I call the first seed of self-confidence, the looking to things you've succeeded at in the past. But some of you, You've had these moments in your past. Some of you have had these moments of success in your past, but you never stop and take a second to consider it. You never stop and take a second to really take stock of these wins in the past and think about, okay, well, you know, I've had a few bands pay me. You know, I've had some people tell me that I'm pretty good, but I may have forgotten about that. Maybe I only think about the one person that's shit talking me or the one person that says I'm not good enough instead of the 10 people that are telling me I'm good enough. So that's really the essence of this first seed of self-confidence is looking to your past successes if you have any. And if you do not have any things that you have succeeded at in the past, there is a high chance that you have not been challenging yourself. You have not been pushing yourself hard enough and putting yourself out there and facing a potential failure and then if you're not willing to do that, then it's hard to get those successes and those wins. But let's move on to the second seed here, the second seed of self-confidence. And that is something called vicarious experiences. This is basically just seeing the people around you succeed. Yeah. Especially people that are similar to you. So if you never see someone that you can say, that, that person did that, well, I can do that. Then it may be time to sit and reassess who you're surrounding yourself with. I think Tim Ferriss said it. I don't know if it was on his podcast or in one of his books, but he said, or I think he stole this from someone else, but you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. What he's basically trying to say is if you spend most of your time, just look at the people you spend the most of your time with, the five people you surround yourself with the most, it could be a girlfriend. It would definitely be a girlfriend if, or a boyfriend if you have one. It would be your best friend, your acquaintances, the people you hang out with on weekends. What are they doing with their life? What are they doing in their businesses? What are they doing with their careers? And if that answer is nothing... <laughs> If that answer is working at McDonald's or something that is, you know, a minimum wage job somewhere, it may be 
very difficult to ever get anything as far as vicarious experiences, the second seed of self-confidence because those people aren't pushing themselves. Those people aren't trying to get a career in audio. Those people aren't trying to start a studio. And if you never surround yourself with people that are successful or at least trying to push for success, then it's very difficult to ever get this boost in self-confidence. That's awesome. You know, I feel lucky in that when I was growing up, my mom's side of the family in particular, her dad had been extremely successful. He started a business and he made a lot of money. That was awesome for me as a child because it showed me what was possible. It wasn't just that everybody that I knew had the same job or everyone I knew did the same thing. When you see someone else who's been successful, that's close to you, whether that's a friend or a family member, it rebrackets what's possible in life. If everybody that you know has never gone to college or never graduated college. And again, college is probably not a great example because we, we come down pretty hard on it on this podcast. If everyone that you know never went to college, there's a really good chance you won't go to college. If everyone that you know weighs over 350 pounds, there's a very good chance that you will weigh over 350 pounds. That is extremely true. And I don't mean that to come down on anybody, but I think there's a lot of value to having experiences where you interact with people whose successes are wildly different and hopefully wildly better than yours are because it rebrackets your possibilities. Now, quick story about that. When I was freshly married, so this would be about 11 years ago, I was renting a house in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio called New Albany. New Albany is a super, super nice, wealthy subdivision, irritatingly so. And the guy I was running the house from, I'll never forget it. It was a Wednesday and he has seven kids. And I remember looking out my window one day and he was hanging out with two of his kids on a Wednesday afternoon. Now this is a guy with hundreds of employees. And I looked out there and you know what my reaction to that was? Is he allowed to do that? <laughs> and it blew my mind. I seriously stopped in my tracks and was like, what is he doing? I thought he was like a real grown up and because it didn't fit into my ideas of what work looked like. Like he's, I thought he was successful. What's he doing on a Wednesday afternoon hanging out with his kids? And it blew my mind and it completely, it was a violent rebracketing of what success could look like when I saw that. And, you know, building a friendship with him and his family really had a huge impact on me because they lifted themselves up by their bootstraps and did really, really well for themselves. And so I would say my advice to people that struggle with this bracketing issue of you're all five of your closest friends are very unsuccessful and you're worried you're going to end up like them too. Find a Starbucks in the richest, most entrepreneurial neighborhood that you can and just go and hang out there. Just sit down, you know, bring your laptop or something, do some work, bring a book and just hang out and be around people who are self-made. If you don't have any friends that are entrepreneurs, that are successful businessmen, that might just mean going down and having a beer with somebody that owns a business. Hang out with people who have been successful without having a boss and make sure that the way that you bracket what's possible for your own success includes them in the mix. Well, I want to touch on kind of the difference between the people I was surrounding myself with when I just started my studio in 2009 versus now, um, first and foremost, people are thinking, well, do I have to fire my friends? <laughs> do I have to just say, oh, I can't hang out with you. You're not successful. Absolutely not. 
there is no way I would ever tell someone to do that. But what I am saying is if you don't start surrounding yourself with more successful people, you will struggle to see success. That being said, it is very difficult for you to befriend people at a high success level if you're not also trying to be successful at something or trying to grow a business or trying to do something similar to them because birds of a feather flock together. So if you haven't yeah. shown some sort of initiative or shown some sort of hustle, don't expect to go you know, get a mentor or a friend of someone with a $17 million medical supply business. But I want to talk about in 2009, some of my closest friends, if you looked at them, what were they doing? Working less than $10 an hour jobs, they were, you know, delivering pizzas or working at a fast food restaurant or working at GameStop, which is where I had just finished working at in 2008. And I was making $5 and 50 cents an hour. They would play video games most of the time. And that's what I would do with them is I'd spend time playing video games with them. And that was pretty much the extent of our friendships. If you look at that now, the people I surround myself with now, those people have just drifted away naturally. It's not like I fired them. It's not like I intentionally stopped spending time with them. But as my priorities shifted, as I started building these relationships with people who are doing similar things to me, the relationships naturally blossomed and the other relationships kind of just withered and died off. A completely natural process. And the people I surround myself with now, my best friend is the CTO of a $10 million company. Another friend of mine owns a social media uh, marketing agency with 20 to 25 employees. It's a night and day difference between the people I surround myself with. Now, my podcast co-host, who I would say I'm a friend, I'm pretty good friends with, he's doing awesome things as well. He's got a, a great mastering business. He's got other businesses in the works. And, you know, surrounding yourself with these types of people is huge when it comes to building confidence. And one of the biggest reasons is when you start to share your ideas of what you're looking to do, what you're trying to accomplish, what your goals are, what your dreams are, what your ambitions are, to have someone who has had some sort of success in that area or someone who you respect because they're doing big things tell you that that's a great idea and to help guide you down that path of getting done what you want to get done, that is huge when it comes to having confidence in what you're doing. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine. So you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems, you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, 
we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. That's the number six, figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. Yeah, man, I love that. And my advice to anyone sort of trapped in a small town who doesn't feel like they have that is move or at least get in your car and specifically go to a Starbucks in a different neighborhood. Surround yourself with people that are different than you are. If everyone around you looks the same, you're going to end up just like them. Well, going back to that episode, the interview we did with, with Warren Hewitt, he moved from a small village in England, the, the village that had 3,000 people in it. And it. There's no way Warren would have anywhere near the same success had he stayed in that small village of 3,000 people. There, I, I, there, I don't see that ever happening because if you look at the butterfly effect of him moving to Los Angeles, him meeting someone, and that turned into a friendship, and that friendship turned into a band, and that one band could have been the Fray. You never know, but he would have never worked with the Fray had he never moved to LA. And you see what I'm saying? It's like those types of decisions, those things that are huge moves in your life, moving to another city and another country, like that is insane. That takes a lot of confidence, but you know, it's, it's hard to have the success without having the willingness to take that kind of move. And I know some of that takes confidence and that's kind of what we're talking about today, but just food for thought. I don't know where we even came from on that topic. All right, let's move on to seed number three. So building your confidence, we talked about these four seeds or these four seeds that you could potentially look to, to plant self-confidence in yourself. Number three is social persuasion. That's basically hearing from others that you are capable. Chris talked about his experience in social persuasion or hearing that he's capable from this mastering engineer that said, you are good enough to do this full time. If you never have someone tell you you are good enough, someone validate you, it can be a difficult road. And really it goes along with seed number two, surrounding yourself with people that are doing the things that you want to do. Uh, If you are surrounding yourself with people that are wildly different, you'll never hear from others that you are capable. And if you're constantly getting beaten down by people, if you're constantly getting torn down or pulled back or told that you shouldn't be doing this or you should be doing that or you shouldn't be doing this or you should be doing that, that's the type of person you should probably be cutting out of your life. So this is where I like to create something that I call your fave five list. (laughs) This is the list of people in your life whose opinion you will allow to matter to you. And if someone tries to share their opinion, or share with you what they think that you should be doing with your life, and they're not on this list of five people, disregard it, cut it out from your life, move on. And I think that if you really take pen to paper here and write this list down, this can go a long way towards you know, making sure that the people that you want to speak into your life is speaking into your life, and the people you don't want speaking into your life are completely ignored from what they're saying in your life. You have to be careful with this though, because sometimes you know, people are speaking truth that you don't wanna hear, but it is things, something you do need to hear. And you have to have the maturity to know when to take someone's advice uh, and who should be on this list of your fave five. Anything to add to this, Chris? I think I do have something to add to that. If you're having a situation like that, I'm going to, that the five people that you surround yourself with the most tend to tear you down. I'm going to make a guess and I bet I'll be right. And I would guess that the people that are tearing you down are... Either your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, 
or a friend that is the same age as you are? Most likely someone you went to high school with, the friends you don't get to choose. (laughs) It's the friends you're forced to have, basically. Exactly. I think that our generation of millennials has a concerning issue, and I freaking love millennials. I think we're the greatest generation. But by and large, it's not uncommon to meet a millennial who is not interested in having friends that are much older or much younger than they are. What do you mean? I find that millennials tend to prefer people their own age. They, t- they don't want to have a friend that's a y- more than a year or two older or younger than they are. Uh, I mean, you could argue that any generation is like that, though. Yeah, you could. But I think it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because you're not going to have relationships with people whose opinions matter to you. Yeah, I think in the interview we did with, uh, with Matt, Matt is a generation older than us, right? At least one generation older than us. And we talked about how there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Yeah. So I, I would say that's something that I would bring to the table on this is, is if you're struggling with the people whose opinions matter to you are all people your age from your town, get some friends that are older, get some friends that don't live in your town, get some friends that are way younger to have a perspective about whether your business will be successful. You need to talk to more people because here's the thing. And this is another problem with our school system. You are not going to only do business with people that are your age. You're not going to only have customers that are a year or two older or a year or two younger than you. Your customers will be multiple ages and they'll span the gamut, you know, from 18 to 65 is this approximately the age range of my customers. You need to be able to interact with people that aren't your own age. And when you do, you'll eventually form relationships, which I think are the best relationships where you have an older person in your life who is encouraging you, who's made some mistakes and has said, you could pull this off or boy, have you tried this? You'd be really good at this. All right. So let's move into the final seed of self-confidence. And this is something called emotional status. This is basically just staying positive, managing stress uh, when you are starting to feel down. And this is a trap I see a lot of people fall into. That is when they don't have these other seeds of self-confidence, they don't have anyone speaking positive things in their life, telling them that they are capable. They don't see any of their friends succeeding and they don't have anything they can look back to as successes in their life, then they start to get into this downward spiral, this negative feedback loop of self-destruction. And I've talked about this in, in a video before, but if you never have any amount of positive reinforcement in your life, it can get very easy to just go down, 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 down. You doubt yourself, which causes you to make the wrong choices, which causes you to not see the results you want in your life, which causes you to further doubt yourself. You have people telling you you're not, you shouldn't be doing this. Then you start to see your bank account go down. Then you start to further down your, and it's just this negative feedback loop. And this is when it's really important for this fourth seed of self-confidence to come into play. And that is, like I said, it's emotional. It's all about your emotional status, staying positive, managing stress. And if you take away all clinical conditions here, And you focus on, because I'm not going to speak on those because that's outside of the realm of what I can speak on, but I can speak on when it comes to managing your emotional status, staying positive and managing your stress. This is the stuff you can control. How you react to certain things happening is typically something you can control. You can't control the outcome of certain situations, but you can control how you react to those situations and the results from those situations. So if you start to notice that you're giving yourself negative self-talk, here's a couple questions that you can ask yourself to try to get out of that loop, that negative loop, uh, and to keep those thoughts from taking over and potentially becoming uh, something called a limiting belief. And we talked about limiting beliefs briefly on past episodes, but 
these are some questions to ask yourself. So if you're feeling inadequate, let's just say you are feeling like you shouldn't be doing this as a career, right? Here are some questions to ask yourself. One, have you trained and educated yourself as well as you reasonably should to do the job? Meaning, you know, have you been watching tutorials? Are you actively trying to improve your craft? Second, do you have the experiences and resources you need to do it? So in this situation, have you been able to work on this? Have you been able to, to have some sort of practice, whether it's a membership site where you're working on stems every week or whether it's something, you know, that five song mix pack that I put out or whatever, as long as you have the resources to properly work on things uh, and to build that experience up, then we get to the third question. Have you planned, have you prepared and have you rehearsed appropriately? So that's basically just saying, have you put in the work? Have you put in your 10,000 hours? And the final question is, are you setting yourself unattainably high standards for doing the job? If you expect a perfect mix, if you expect a perfect master, you will always be let down. Are you giving yourself a little bit of grace because there is no such thing as a perfect mix? You're maybe not getting exactly what, let's just say, a Chris Graham master sounds like, but you're getting what your master sounds like. And again, there's no such thing as a perfect master. There's no such thing as a perfect mix. So make sure you're setting the right standards for what you're basing your quote unquote results off of. So ask yourself those questions. And realistically, the answer to those questions will probably surprise you in these times when you're starting to feel inadequate. You've put in time, you've put in effort, you're starting to build a little bit of a a track record, some experience. And a lot of times it's our own, we're our own worst enemy when it comes to what is our standard of excellence. Usually it's too high for most of us. Yeah. Well, I always like to talk to my clients. One of the questions I have on my upload form when someone sends me a mastering project is how long does it take you on average to mix a song? And I ask that question um, for a really important reason. If somebody tells me it takes them two weeks to mix a song, that's a pretty good indicator to me that they aren't mixing with their heart. They're mixing with their brain. And what I find is that very often people who have self-confidence issues begin to rely not on the number of goosebumps that a song gives them, but on whether they've checked all the boxes and whether they've really done the sciencey stuff and really, you know, edited to a grid, that sort of thing. And that's concerning. And I think what often happens is you do your first mix. We're going to, for lack of a better term, mix is the best place for us to talk about this. Yeah. I think everyone can kind of relate their craft to a mix. Yeah. You do your first mix and you completely do it instinctually. You're barely even thinking about it. And it's probably something that you finish in less than 15 or 20 minutes. And then what, what I find very often that newer people in our industry will do is they'll get that first mix and they don't save it. They should, the first time that the mix gels, you should save it and have that session file on its own so that you can recall that mix in the future. Then what they do is they go back and their brain starts to be like, um, I'm going to turn up 1K at a super high Q, 47 dB. They do this weird thing where they get really sciencey about, uh, especially on like snares. They'll go in and they'll get really, really surgical with an EQ and they'll get really, really surgical with 14 different compressors and they start thinking in their mind, this will make it better, this will make it better. But what they stop doing is they stop monitoring the artist inside of them, which decides whether the song is more emotionally compelling or not. And when you get down that rabbit hole, it gets miserable. You get insane. And that self-doubt starts to come in because a lot of times when you've overthought it, you've made it worse. 
Yeah. And I'd say that's really when your brain starts taking over in the mix. A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times that's based on the self-doubt or that feeling inadequate yeah. with your skills and abilities. And this is when you start needing to ask yourself the questions that I just covered there. I do have two more scenarios to cover here. Uh, and then I'm done with my outline from this old lesson I did. Let's paint the picture of you're worried about something that is outside of your control. So in this situation, let's just say you put your name in the hat for a mix or you reached out to a band and you want to work with them really bad. You put yourself out there and now you're worried about something that is outside of your control because it's in their hands now. This is just where you ask yourself two questions and this will help you manage the stress. Remember, this is the fourth seed of self-confidence and that is managing stress, trying to stay positive. Ask yourself these two questions in this scenario when you're worried about something that's outside of your control. Question number one is, do you have a backup plan in place if this doesn't turn out the way you want? So in the situation where you put your name in the hat or you reach out to a band you want to work with, well, this shouldn't be the only band you, you work with. This shouldn't be the only band you reach out to. In reality, what you need to be doing is constantly working towards getting clients or constantly looking towards looking for bands that you want to work with or that could be a fit for you instead of stressing out over what one band does. Yeah, It's just like relationships. If you stress over one girl that's not interested in you, it's going to be a very tough time. Instead, you focus on finding a girl that there is a mutual interest. You are interested in her. She's interested in you. Instead of stressing over that one girl that has absolutely no interest, she's already moved on. She's already dating another guy. Instead of letting that beat you down, something that's outside of your control, look to a backup plan. What is your backup plan? And always have one in place. The second question uh, when you're stressed about something that is outside of your control is, have you thought about all of the potential outcomes and plan to the best of your ability? And if you have done this, if you have looked at all the outcomes, you've put all contingency plans in place that you possibly can, it's out of your hands. Let it go and see what happens. That is a really good way to deal with the stress involved with something that's outside of your control. Final situation here as far as managing stress and staying positive is when you're worried about other people's reactions. And this is a common one. This is something you're always going to experience in our field of work. You're always going to have to deal with other people's reactions. And so when you are worried about someone else's reactions, here are three questions that you can ask yourself in order to try to manage the stress. Uh, and that is the first one, have you done this to the best of your current ability? And if you have, what else can you do? You have done it to the best of your ability. If someone doesn't like it, you can always improve, but you have to let it go. The second question is, do they have unreasonable expectations of you? If someone expects you to do a, and I'm just going to try to use a broad example here, a Chris Lord algae mix, but you are a guy in a basement and you're charging $200 a song. Well, if they expect a CLA mix from you and you're a kid in a basement with $100, $200 a song, then they have unreasonable expectations. And if that's the expectations they have on you, that's on them. It's not on you. And then the third part of this if you are worried about someone's reactions to something you're doing or some work you've put out there or anything really in life, ask yourself this last question. Are these people part of your fave five? We talked about a fave five earlier, the five people whose opinion you'll let matter to you. If they're not on that list, don't stress about it. Just move on. This is just stuff I did in my research, ways to manage stress around emotions because emotions are one of those things that can really drag you down and suck your confidence away. This is not the end all be all list of ways to manage this stuff, but I hope it at least gives you a starting point, these four seeds of confidence that you can start looking to. And I'm going to go over these one more time. Seed number one was looking to things you've succeeded at in the past, taking catalog of the things in the past that are successes that you can look to as that first seed, that initial seed that you can try to grow and germinate into some sort of self-confidence that you can hopefully keep growing over time. Like I said, it's not going to happen overnight. This is going to happen 
a little bit over time as you do some of these other things. The second seed of self-confidence is vicarious experiences. So seeing those people around you succeed, especially people that are doing a similar career to you. And that's why I highly encourage people, if you do not have that in your life, if you don't have those people that you're surrounding yourself with that are uh, doing something similar to you, just go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash community. It's just a free Facebook group we do. And there's a lot of awesome people in there, a lot of extremely helpful people in there, some really cool conversations going on. Great way to get yourself surrounded with some people that are actually gonna help build you up. Then we got seat of confidence number three, that is social persuasion. That is hearing from others that you're capable. Again, that's where the Facebook community is a huge part of getting that sort of uh, self-confidence built into what you're I guess snowball, you kind of call it a snowball or your seed. And then fourth and final is emotional status. That is staying positive and managing stress in times that are tough. Anything you want to add to this, Chris, as we wrap up here? Yeah, one more piece for me here. I was talking to my wife last night and we were talking about a book that you recommended to me, Peak Performance. The book was great. And, you know, it's one of the things I love about being your friend is you are in my fave five and getting book recommendations from you is really awesome. I'm like, yeah, Chris, you need to read this book. So uh, I read Peak Performance. And one of the things that was incredible about Peak Performance was it talked about having a peak performance by and large. One of the most important components of that is having the quote unquote courage to rest. And that hit me between the eyes. And it occurred to me last night that just about anything that you might want to do in your life, whether that's be a successful audio engineer, be a successful mastering engineer, be a successful mixing engineer, you name it. A big component of that is this formula for success that he talks about in the book, stress plus rest. The stress alone will not grow you into who you could be. It's stress plus rest. Let me pause here and say, you have to have both though. Have if you're not properly stressing yourself, you don't deserve the rest. So for those of you who are not actually stretching yourself, the ones that are not taking those risks, the things that are the people that are not challenging themselves, you don't get to say, okay, I can rest now because you're never stressing yourself. That's like saying, oh, I took a walk today. So I'm going to eat 10 pounds of cotton candy. That's, that's actually an impossible amount of cotton candy, but you see what I'm saying? It's like, you have to earn the rest. Just like in the gym, you know, most of the growth happens in the rest period, but that's after an extreme amount of stress in a short amount of time. So I just wanted to, to step in there and say, make sure you are putting the stress. And when he says stress, it's just pushing yourself to your limits, not to, the, not to the breaking point, but just pushing yourself to the limits and then giving yourself that proper rest. Because what happens is we get into this workaholic mode where we're working 16 hours a day. We're working all hours of the night. And we're never giving ourselves that chance to rest, but that is an equally important part of the equation is the rest. Yeah. Well, and the thing that's so interesting about rest is that if you're not resting, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're not going to be successful. You're stagnant. You're stagnant. And I think what's so interesting about rest in this conversation is that when you lack it, when you're not well rested, when you're not taking care of yourself, that's when the demons start to speak, man. That's when the self-doubt starts to come. And what's super interesting about rest is this. If you want to be a great mix engineer, if you try hard enough, you probably will become one. If you want to be a great mastering engineer, if you try hard enough, you'll probably do it. If you want to be a great songwriter, if you practice enough, if you stress enough, you'll probably do it. If you want to be great at rest, no amount of effort will help you succeed there. <laughs> you just have to do it. You have to have the courage to rest. You can't just like, I'm going to rest no matter what. Like when you put effort into rest, it's not rest. It negates it. It negates it. So 
that's an important ingredient here and, and something that I see as a vicious cycle in our industry is that you see a young guy and man, this was me. You see a young guy who has feelings of inadequacy because of how much crap he gets from everyone else around him about you're trying to be a, a producer for a living. Why don't you get a real job like me and come work for this uh, health insurance company and sell your soul, that type of thing. And what happens is you overcompensate by working 16 hours a day. And when you work 16 hours a day, you start to think irrationally because you're not well rested and you just stagnate. And man, that was me for a, a number of years. And so this rest thing, it's difficult to break out of these cycles of self-doubt, these cycles of, uh, of imposter syndrome, unless you get the rest thing right first. So if that's something you're struggling with, if either you're not resting at all, or you're struggling with the opposite, which is you play video games for 10 hours a day, or you watch football Saturday and Sunday all day during the football season. Well, that's what I do, but that's because I don't work <laughs> on the weekends. Well, there you go. But if you're struggling with the opposite of this sort of workaholism, you know, that gets into the laziness zone, that's its own poison. That's a whole other thing I think is beyond the scope of this. But just kind of, I think, take that home, that stress plus rest equals growth, but no amount of effort. You can't like master rest based on effort. So there's an interesting component there where your mental health is directly related to how well you rest. Yeah, I just want to kind of say as, as I wrap this up for good, take this type of stuff one step at a time, baby steps. Don't feel like you have to do all of these things at one time. Don't feel like you have to remove all your friends and go network and build all new friends and uh, do this and that or whatever and start stressing harder and resting harder. Like that, that will kill you. Just focus on one thing that you can do right now. Yeah. And what is that one action? What is that next step? This is why I like the book, Getting Things Done by David Allen so much. And that's because he focuses on what is the next actionable step towards this bigger goal. It's not like, what is this? What is every single step in this entire bigger goal? It's just, what is the next actionable step? And then schedule it. And then, hey, surprise, do it. That's awesome. Well, if you thought this was a great episode, by and large, our thanks to Sean, our editor. We went down a lot of rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, he's going to do a lot of editing this episode. Thanks, Sean. This is just a quick shout out to Mr. Sean Barnes, my assistant. Indeed. Yeah. So we appreciate you, Sean, and we appreciate you guys for listening to the show. Whoa.